Thank you, worship team, for all the hard work that goes into it every Sunday, but certainly as we saw this morning. And I'll confess, I have a particular liking to that last song, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I'll be singing that one through the day. Fortunately, you won't be around to hear it. <laughs> Amen. It's important where you put that. There are three friends, three friends who stood quietly and reflectively over a casket of a friend. One of them dared to break the silence by asking, when you're in a casket and loved ones are mourning over you, what would you like them to say? First one answered, I'd like them to say I was a wonderful husband, a fine spiritual leader, and a great family man. The second one replied, yeah, yeah, and I'd like them to say I was a wonderful teacher who made a a, a huge difference in people's lives. The third friend paused and he said, you know, I'd like them to say, look, he's moving, (laughs) I guess. Well, on that Sunday morning, as women came to the tomb with spices to anoint the body of Jesus, what you might possibly have heard from their lips was something like, even better than, look, he's moving, look, he's gone. And while they were reflecting on this, angels said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And because of that truth, it changes how we face death. Like the three friends who kind of had their own way of facing death, two reflectively, one jokingly, we too must come to grips with our own mortality. Probably know the famous line of Woody Allen, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, guess what? You will be. Or as Bible scholar Admiral Kirk put it in Star Trek (laughs) 2, joking, How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. What is it you really need to face death and face life head on? One word, hope. Hope. It's likely no surprise that on Easter Sunday I would choose to speak on hope. What might be of some surprise, however, is the passage of Scripture I have chosen for this morning. I'm not going to look at any of the four Gospels that give us the true account of Jesus' resurrection. I'm not, I'm not going to turn to, to Paul's long discord, discourse in, in 1 Corinthians 15 on the significance of believing in Jesus' resurrection as a staple for our faith. No, 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 I'm going to look at Romans chapter 8 this morning. And so turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It's right after the book of Acts, which immediately follows the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you in the chair there. Romans chapter 8, as you come to Romans chapter 8, right out of the gates, it begins with no condemnation. No condemnation. And then, when you come to the end of Romans 8, it is no separation. Beginning, no condemnation. Ending, no separation. But sandwiched in between is present frustration. Present frustration. Now, growing up as a Red Sox fan, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I knew frustration. (laughs) From the young age of watching Yaz play and Jim Rice and Carlton Fisk and Roger Clemens and Wade Boggs and Billy Buckner, 
That's all you had to relive that moment. And I'd go, this is the year. This is the year. They're going to win it all. Hope springs eternal. Chicago Cubs fans know the same feeling, right? Waiting 71 years. Hope springs eternal. Now often that phrase, hope springs eternal, is used to describe what you continue to hope will happen, although it seems unlikely. I keep buying lottery tickets, you might say. Hope springs eternal. I'm just going to run into the DMV and run right out. (laughs) Hope springs eternal. This road trip with three kids under five, they'll do fine. Hope springs eternal. Now, what if, what if we took uh, that phrase, hope springs eternal, literally instead? What if our hope was not in the things of this world or in a change of my circumstance? What if Jesus Christ really was our living hope and we lived that way all the time? What if hope was more than this wishful thinking? Hope, as John Piper puts it, is a Christian hope. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. Biblical hope is a confidence Not wishful thinking, confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees that someday God will enlarge this Easter miracle to cosmic scale. All right, Romans 8, 18 through 25. I'll give you the takeaway up front as I often do. It's simply this. You can't really appreciate the resurrection of Jesus unless you first embrace this is a fallen world. You can't really appreciate the resurrection of Jesus unless you first really embrace that this is a fallen world. My first heading this morning is incomparable truth. Incomparable truth that comes from verse 18. Look at me at verse 18. I consider that present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now when Paul says there, I consider that, it's the idea of weighing something on a set of scales. He's saying, I have thought this issue about suffering over very, very carefully. I have weighed all the evidence. This is my conclusion. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And these words are coming from a man who was beaten, whipped, nearly died at least one time, shipwrecked, stoned, robbed, as Paul describes his personal experience in the God-breathed words of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing a word spoken from a man who said in Galatians 6:17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And so what he's saying here, if you put the worst suffering you can think of on one side of the scales... And you put the glories of the age to come on the other side of the scales. The glory would so outweigh the sufferings, the sufferings would be launched into the air and gone. Are you certain? Are you certain that when this life is over, your next step's heaven? No, I'd love to talk to you about that one. And if if you're certain, these words should give us a little perspective. 
This groaning that we're going to be looking at here in this passage is temporary. And we might find out that three seconds from the time we step into heaven will this, will this, fading, this groaning fade from our memory. Our future glory outweighs our present pain. In light of the magnificence of God's glory, our sufferings are quite small. Matter of fact, Paul says there's no comparison. There will be a day. There will be a day when every ache and every pain and every cry and every depression and every loss, every weakness will be no more. No more medicine cabinets, no more funerals, no more doctors. We won't need health care coverage. We'll never see wheelchair or crutches again. No more being misunderstood. No more fear. No more being put on hold waiting for a customer representative. <laughs> no more snow blowing. Yes. What's your, what's, your, what's your no more that you're waiting for, that you're looking forward to? Well, when you step into eternity... The continuous joy you will experience will far exceed the temporary pain that is now threatening to overtake you. I want to live there all the time because I don't. It's all because Jesus is risen from the dead. Sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's the incomparable truth. Secondly, I want to look at unrelenting struggle. Unrelenting struggle. I pick it up in uh, verse 19. It says, the creation waits an eager expectation. Creation now waits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now what Paul's doing here is using personification. He's giving human characteristics to something non-human. Creation longs for the day when God's children, all who know Jesus, will be taken into glory. For that will then mean total renewal for all of creation. Scripture, it speaks. Scripture speaks of trees clapping. How do they, they don't have hands. How do they clap? Mountains and singing. Wilderness glad. Seas give praise. It's said this way. Describe the day when everything will be made new. Creation waits in eager expectation. And the word picture here is of plants and trees, mountains, all of nature standing on tiptoe, straining their neck waiting to be liberated from all the decay. And so all these beautiful, beautiful mountain peaks, the pristine lakes, the vast oceans, beautiful gardens and landscape that surround us are nothing compared to what is to come. A little girl was walking with her dad and early evening, and as she looked at the sky, with all the stars, she exclaimed, wow, oh, daddy, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the right side be, <laughs> right? But for now, creation groans. There's this unrelenting struggle. Why the struggle? Well, the, at the beginning of, of all things, God, uh, work of creation, remember, God declared, it is very good. It is very good. Beauty existed. That's the way the story began. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, things turned badly over Adam and Eve's choice of sin. And so, curse is the ground because of you. 
It will produce thorns and thistles for you, God said, as a consequence of their sinful choice. And so the earth from that point forward was not as it should be, but was subject to frustration, to futility. That's why verse 20 of Romans 8 says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, they had no say in the matter, but by the will of the one God who subjected it and hoped that the creation itself, now get this, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Folks, that's a picture of a downward spiral that began with Adam and Eve's choice to sin. Sorry, folks. Creation is not evolving into something better. It's not. The Bible gives an explanation for why so much in nature is broken. It explains why there's earthquakes, why there's tornadoes, why there's hurricanes, why there are spiders, why there are mice, cockroaches, I don't know, everything else that thwarts the order of harmony. Now certainly, as stewards of God's creation, We are to care for it and do all we can to set it right as much as possible. Hear that. But our hope in a renewed creation sets us free from the naivety of utopianism. That we can find perfect peace and and a perfect place on this side of heaven if we just keep working at it. No. We can't. In the late 60s, uh, Joni Mitchell wrote Woodstock where there was this dreamy utopia. Of just We all just need peace and love, right? And, and she wrote these words, we're stardust, we're golden, we're caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. No, no, we don't need to get ourselves back to the garden. We need to return to the God who created the garden. A perfect environment is not what we need. We need God. And that's what these verses are meant to do here in Romans 8. Push us towards something much better than what this world can deliver. And that's what verse 22 gets at here. Notice it. Groaning. Creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Pains of childbirth. All right. I'm not qualified to speak of the pains of childbirth. (laughs) But I think the image is clear. What woman enjoys the intense pain felt in labor? Who enjoys the groaning? I mean, who here has a picture on our phones or in our wallets of our wives in labor? If you do, you're sick. (laughs) Oh, let me show you a picture of my wife groaning in labor. Isn't the agony beautiful? Come on. We have pictures of what? The joys of birth. Suffering is not the final word. The joy comes with the arrival of her newborn. Now, we live in a fallen world. We groan. Creation groans. And there's a lot to groan about. There's an unrelenting struggle in our days here. In this world, there is pain. There are tears. There's plenty of heartache to go around. In this world, there's something wrong with everything. I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. As has been said, an optimist is the person who knows exactly how sad a place the world can be. A pessimist is one who is forever finding out. Right? 
And as long as we try to make life work for us on earth rather than living for a future hope, we will forever discover how disappointing life can be. That you today? It's that, it's that frustration that we got. What's the point of all this anyway? Why bother? Well, there will be a day when this frustration, these groans will be eliminated. We long for the delivery. In the meantime, all creation eagerly awaits. Not only is it the creation that waits. Notice verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and daughters and the redemption of our bodies. All right, undeniable tension. Let's talk about this undeniable tension. It says here we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, you probably know this, but a farmer's first fruits were both the beginning of the harvest and the guarantee that the harvest, the full harvest, would come in due time. It's to be viewed kind of as the first stage of something. The first stage was a foretaste, a promise that more was to come. And so, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, you're in the first stage of your salvation in this sense. And the Holy Spirit that's given to you is a foretaste of all that you have in Jesus Christ. And so, we can taste at times the close child and father relationship with God. We can. We can enjoy the many blessings from God's hands, good friends, pleasures of life, good dining, whatever it is for you. These are all, though, just samplings of the other side, the first fruits. And Paul speaks of this the first fruits of the Spirit. And so the Spirit's presence in you believer, believers is a guarantee that there are more blessings to come. And yet we're caught in this tension between what God has given us and what we will be in our final adoption and redemption. There's something much better waiting for us because heaven is the final answer to all our groanings. There will be a day when we will experience a deeper, richer relationship with Jesus Christ with no hindrances, no interruptions, no place where we have to be. There will be a day when we will enjoy authentic relationships where there's no egos getting in the way, no misunderstandings, no hurts, no pretenses. That is our hope. So he says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Listen. If someone can take away your hope, you need a new one. If someone can take away your hope, you need a new hope. If some situation can leave you uh, feeling hopeless, you need a new hope. If this life is all that you have, you need a new hope. I read that there's a, a unique funeral custom among African Muslims. The close family and friends, they would circle and gather around the casket and, and quietly gaze at the body. There was no singing, there were no flowers, there were no tears even. A peppermint candy, a peppermint candy is then passed to everyone that's right there. And at a signal, each one puts that peppermint candy in his or her mouth. And when the candy is gone, each participant is reminded that life for this person is over. Because they believe life simply dissolves. 
What hopelessness. What hopelessness. I mean, do you live as though this life is all that there is? Peppermint candy, taste it, dissolves, done. Really? If life ends like a dissolved peppermint candy, then what justifies living? What justifies all this frustration in this world? What's the point of all this groaning? What is all this sighing all about? Is that all it is? There is? I mean, and there's a lot to sigh about. There is. Sighs are often associated with a negative mood, kind of a sigh of disappointment or maybe a sigh of frustration or boredom or feeling overwhelmed. I've been known to almost unknowingly give off a deep sigh. <laughs> My wife's caught me on it before. I go in the room and go, you, you just I didn't even know I did it. I do it. What's that all about? Sighs, groans. You have your share of groans in this room. People, you brought in groans this morning. In this room are groans and sighs, right? A newborn baby with health challenges. <sighs> Disturbing headline. <sighs> News of a passing. A personal struggle. Trying to resist temptation. Your motive's getting questioned. Another day dealing with chronic pain. <sighs> if you have a teenager, you're probably side. Just saying. When we feel overwhelmed, we sigh. When someone dies way too soon, we sigh. When we're frustrated the way things are, we sigh. When we hear of some injustice, little or big, we sigh. Words inflicted by others, wounds inflicted by others, we groan. Pain is common to all of us in this room in one form or another. Now groaning, by the way, is not sin. It happens because of what sin caused. For example, on one occasion, Jesus encountered a man who was deaf and he was unable to speak. And just before Jesus healed this man, it says that Jesus looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. With a deep sigh. Same word for groan in our passage. Jesus groaned. Jesus longed for the day that all pain would end. And so do we. And all this groaning is because life was not meant to be this way. There's a book written with the title, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Yep, we know this isn't what it's supposed to be. Where do we go with that? What's the answer to all this groaning? Fulfillment and living life here. The death of Christ we call Good Friday, right? And the resurrection of Christ from the dead and that he's indeed alive we name Easter Sunday. Well, Philip Yancey, he asked this question. He says, can we trust that God can make something holy and beautiful and good out of a world that includes inner city ghettos and jam prisons and the richest nation on earth? He says, it's Saturday on planet earth. Will Sunday ever come? Why do our days 
feel like one long Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because we live in this in-between time. The time between uh, what we are today and what we will be when our salvation is complete. The time between all our imperfections and the perfect state of completion and wholeness. That time between being saved from the penalty of sin and finally being delivered from the presence of sin. So what's the posture we should have while living in this in-between time? One word, waiting, waiting. Well, I don't want to wait. <laughs> I can't help, I swear my mind goes. But that old um, Heinz ketchup commercial coming out of that bottle with Carly Simon's song, Anticipation, remember? Right? You have to be old enough to remember that one. There was an article that noted that ketchup out of the bottle like that uh, flows at a rate of um, 0.028 miles per hour, which is six times slower than a tortoise. I mean, that's information you wanted to hear today, right? Got something? So researchers, they came up with a special coating inside that that would allow it to slide out faster. Why? Because people were tired of waiting several minutes for ketchup to land on their cheeseburger. Oh, isn't that terrible? First world problem. Waiting. Do you like to wait? I'm probably the last person that should be speaking on waiting. So take this for what it's worth. Coming from here. I think, I think waiting is the perfect um, uh, description of this time in, in the present in which we, we must live. We wait. And how we wait is critical for, each, for living each day in this fallen world. Now quickly here, I want you to notice with me two phrases. Two phrases that sum up how we're to live in these days. Verse 23, we are told to wait eagerly. And in verse 25, we're told to wait patiently. So we're to wait eagerly, anticipation, anticipation, and we're to wait patiently. And you kind of go, well, they kind of seem at odds with each other. No, well, as we wait, we need both. As we live in this in-between time, we need to balance the expectation, the anticipation with patience. John Stott put it the best way. He said, we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. That's what he's saying here. If we grow impatient of waiting, you're going to do a lot of grumbling. If you grow impatient of waiting, you're going to start to wrestle God for control. On the other hand, if you lose your expectation, your anticipation, you're going to slip into apathy, pessimistic outlook on life. You'll become obsessed with all the groans. You become more and more self-centered. I got to grab all I can. Because I'm not waiting any longer. We need both. Waiting eagerly, waiting patiently. Listen, what we feel right now, we won't always feel. Embrace the reality that life is frustrating, but let it drive you to God this morning. Max Lucado gives us this perspective. It's on the screen. He says, unhappiness on earth cultivates a hunger for heaven. By gracing us with a deep dissatisfaction, God holds our attention. 
The only tragedy then is to be satisfied prematurely, to settle for earth, to be content in a strange land. Are you dissatisfied? You're just kind of tired of all that's going on. No matter what you reach for, it just doesn't quite bring that satisfaction to your soul. Listen, God has placed eternity in your hearts. It tells us in Ecclesiastes 3. That means that the hope that springs eternal is inside of you and it won't be satisfied until it's filled with Jesus Christ. Lasting happiness cannot be found here. It can't. We live in a fallen world. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died and was resurrected to deliver us from this fallen world. You see, you cannot really appreciate the resurrection of Jesus unless you first embrace that this is a fallen world. And because of Jesus' resurrection, there will be a complete reversal of all that causes us to grow. Since hope springs eternal, we can choose to overcome fear and place hope in God in whatever you're groaning about right now. Since the resurrection of Jesus really happened, there is hope for you no matter what happens. Because Jesus is risen, we are promised that he will come again. And that day when we will be transported from this grace-filled life to a glory-filled eternity, that day will come. Gregory Fisher speaks of that day when Christ will descend from heaven, when you come and, and take all his children home with him, he, he, he says, he's going to come with a loud command. Scripture speaks of that. A loud command. A loud shout. What will that shout be? What will that command be? Well, we can only speculate. And Fisher, in fact, does speculate. He says, what will that command be? What will that shout be? He goes, I believe it will be one word. Jesus will shout, enough. Enough. Enough starvation, enough disease, enough pain, enough terror, enough death, enough hopelessness, enough sickness, enough time, enough suffering. Enough. Jesus' resurrection seals the promise that someday God will enlarge the miracle of Easter to a cosmic scale. Until then, church, we wait. We wait. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wonderful truth that you deliver us from all this groaning. This is not all there is. You give us a perfect explanation in your word of all that's going on in this world and all the craziness and the natural disasters, and all the diseases and sickness. This isn't all there is, and I thank you. I thank you for our future hope that rests in Jesus Christ and in him alone, for he is our living hope. Until then, we need your grace to fill us every single day until that time when we see you face to face. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.